Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen. We made the papers. Tax reform in China puts productions on hold. A high-powered producer returns to Media Asia Films. We remember musician Ellen Liu, who died this past weekend. And our films this week, House of the Rising Suns and Flavors of Youth. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin. Where if films were food, they'd be full of it. And welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida, and coming to us from his news desk, behind Anthony Chan's drum set, is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hey there, Paul. Hey there, everyone. How's it going? All right. How are you doing? Um. Well, you know, we we were now had a shot to fame, Paul. Do you yes. realize? <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far. Uh, but yeah, it's a... Uh, a nice little, a nice little blurb that we'll talk about when we get into our our news proper because I guess it is proper news. Um, but you know, beyond that, uh, how's Hong Kong? How's everything going? Is you guys having a hot summer? Yeah, well, hot and typhoon-free summer so far. Um, all the typhoons seems to seem to have shot down either over to Hainan or over to the east, up to uh, past Taiwan, up to Japan, and then turned back around to Shanghai. So we're, we've had a pretty um, good weather uh summer um here so far and we still got a month to go so uh, knock on wood um but you know pretty busy work as always uh got a couple of new projects i'm working on and one i'm very 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 excited about but i can't talk about it but it may maybe want to scream like i can't believe i'm working on this project um so yeah things are things are all right how about you paul how's it going right. on your end excellent you know it's a uh... Sort of technically, I mean, it's not really the last week of summer, but it is for parents because uh, here next week school uh, school starts up and kids head back to school, and that means parents have to wake up early and get their kids ready and uh, all of that good stuff. So we have that to look forward to. But other than that, so far, so good. Cannot complain. So let's not waste further time with that. Let me throw the talking stick back over to Kevin with this week's news. Here at the news desk, well... We are the news, our first news item. Uh, yeah, the East Screen, West Screen podcast uh, ended up uh, on the SCMP um, thanks to writer Matthew Scott. He named us one of the eight Hong Kong podcasts that will entertain and educate you this summer um, alongside you know a few good local um, English language podcasts. Uh, we've been at this for six years, right? Seven or six more years? More than right? that. More than that. I think we're going yeah. on uh, about nine. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, which our, our, uh, our anniversary will be, uh, I think, in next, not next week, or in two weeks, maybe, from the time we're recording this. But, I mean, nine years since we found started the first episode, but, of course, we had about a year and a half hiatus for a period. So, But, yeah, it's been, uh, it was 2009 when we kicked this off. 
what was it? Overheard the first. We, we talked about this one fifth anniversary. I think our first film was Overheard. I think so. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and nine years later, you know, we've been doing this, um, and finally, you know, it's good to be uh, recognized. I'm flattered, obviously. Uh, and and I'm thankful for all the support that um, our followers gave after we put the news up on the on, on Facebook and uh, on Twitter, um, and it's always good to know people are listening, you know. Yes, indeed, and I'm I'm just curious as to how um, Mr. Scott actually found our podcast because, I mean, uh, of all well, the I know things, Mr. Scott, I know Matthew, so, oh, so, so you, you passed it, passed yeah. a check over to him, is it? No. I... <laughs> I swear, I don't even remember telling him about a podcast. I swear. Yeah, because, I mean, one of the downsides of, of all this that we do is, you know, uh, Kevin brings the gravitas and his connections and the news, and I kind of go into the producer's role, kind of lining up um, what we'll talk about and handling the technical side of it. But where I think I really fail is in promotion. Um, because <laughs> when it comes to, like, checking our you know, our numbers and the, the data, all that stuff that's very popular today. Um, when you kind of maintain a website, I don't do any of that because it's, I, it's just not my thing. It's so time consuming. And I got, I mean, I got to a point where I just didn't care anymore. I mean, I kind of knew what the numbers were, I think about five or six years ago. Um, and it got to a point where I was like, well, I'm never gonna, we're never going to monetize this because we're such a niche podcast. So, you know why if people write in occasionally and like to listen to us that's good enough for me so i've been told i'm terrible at promoting myself so um i i'm very bad at this and which is very bad for the podcast i feel like uh i haven't really done done my part in in getting it out there i mean we tweet um the the tweets when we have new episodes but I'm so bad at promoting myself, and I didn't realize, Paul, you, you, you were, you made that as well. I am, I'm terrible at it, and, you know, it's something I'd like to do better. And the little bit of depression I get from reading the article is, is that I'm no longer a Hong Kong guy. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like definitely the West screen side of things now, because I live here in Florida, and it makes me pine and want to be back in Hong Kong again. Um, but uh, maybe, maybe one day, or, you know, in the future that will happen. Uh, but for now, we're still solidly here in um, South Florida. But uh, again, thank you to Mr. Scott if you listen. Um, and thanks to all of our listeners who are out there and who keep up with us um, through the ups and downs and the hiatuses um, through the years. And we enjoy doing this because you enjoy listening and we like to hear from you. So again, a big thanks to everybody. And and going on that, um, thanking our listeners, I want to thank listener Jenny Safe for sending us um, a very special video that came out last week from Hong Kong. It was an ad uh, by an uh, electronic chain store uh, called Broadway, and they made an MTV starring uh, Louis Ku um, not dancing to his classic dance song. Um, it was an ad, and I think I think they, they did a new cover of that song, which was very much maligned, I think, at the time. Um, but they somehow decided to cover it and, and have these real professional dancers, uh, actually from Japan, and did a whole thing with Joey Young, and, and Louis Ku showed up, sort of stood right in the middle of the girls, but he refused to join the dance. Um, and we got a little, had a small conversation about the Louis Ku cinema and things like that, and, we pro- and I promised that I would put a photo of the Louis Ku cinema when I actually go, when I have a chance to go. So thank you um, to Jenny uh, for reminding us and for sending over the video. Yes, indeed. I mean, and I mean, we know now that 
unless there's a giant cat involved, Lewis is not going to dance, right? He's not going <laughs> to, just not going to do it. So, well, uh, you, you figured he had a bit more humor about it because he's the one that did that dance. It, it was like a very much like a hammer dance. Like he would, uh, he, he put his leg to the side and then he would do this sort of forward hammer motion. It was very famous. And he would do it left, center, right. And it was a very, it was a great dance. But, and I thought, and I thought he would do it, but he just stood there like, yeah. like not a champ. He's the predecessor of Gangnam Style, right? Louis Koo for you. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, yes, thanks to Jenny. Um, and I guess on to some proper news uh, for the week. Uh, tax reforms, right? That's what everybody likes to hear about. Yeah, so everyone is talking about Winnie the Pooh being banned in China. I'm not going to go into that. I mean, you can go read serious press reports about how China hates Winnie the Pooh and refused to let Christopher Robin in. I don't need to add anything to that. But something that they're not covering, I'm surprised, is um, a new policy that has actually um, has considerable shockwaves through the industry. Um, on August 1st, the tax bureau or whatever, the tax authorities in China uh, enacted um, a new policy or, so, so to speak, they, they sort of rescinded a former a tax break that they had for entertainment companies. Um, to explain, um, a lot of, uh, of film companies and, and celebrities, they actually registered their companies in two specific cities in China. One is Korgos in uh, Xinjiang, and the other one is Wuxi. The reason is that they're tax havens. Um, in other words, if you register a company there, um, I think they're trying to, to encourage investment in those areas. If you register a company there, your company doesn't have to pay any corporate tax for the first five years. And that's a huge tax break for these companies. So a lot of um, film critics credits in China, you see the beginning of the film, you would see uh, Korgo's something something company or Wuxi something something company. That's because the, re the companies are registered there. Um, so the companies register in Tianjin, you see Tianjin, blah, 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 company, media company, unlimited, whatever. Um, but what happened is that... Um, the government put a tax break on a lot of these companies, um, and they only charged them, I think, a 10% tax on um, everything, including actor salaries. I mean, actor salaries is sort of becoming the biggest uh, cost of a Chinese film these days. So that's the one that the media is is focusing on. Um, what they've been doing is that they've only been charging a 10% uh, tax rate. So essentially... For example, the, the salaries that you hear in the press about um, what actors are getting, they're the post-tax rate. So, for example, um, Donnie was one, Donnie Yen was one that was mentioned in the Hong Kong press. He gets 100 million dollars yuan, 100 million yuan for each film. And the production company that hires him actually is responsible for paying that tax. So, actually, on the contract, what Donnie is getting paid is 110 million yuan with 10 million being taken away for, for taxes. But now what happened is that starting August 1st, that tax break no longer applies, which means now the companies have to pay the full taxes, the tax rate, which is 42%. Um, which means now if you want to hire Donnie and you want to pay his usual 100 million yuan fee, you have to pay an extra 42 million yuan on top of that because you're, the companies have to pay the taxes on behalf of the uh, of the stars. Um, that is a huge, huge increase if you think about it. That's a 30% increase on what they have to usually pay to hire a star. Um, Andy Lau, for example, he usually pay, gets paid 50 mil post-tax. 
and now uh, so usually the companies would pay five million, and now they have to pay twenty. Um, and this isn't just starting August first. These companies now have to pay retroactively, as in any any pay that they pay, anything that they paid the stars from January until now, they have to pay taxes on that as well. And those companies, um, they're run by the sort of what we call the workshops. They're uh, established, the corporation, the companies, they're established by the actors. They're not allowed to close down until they pay their taxes. Um, so this has caused a huge, huge shockwave in the industry. Um, according to Hong Kong Media, 70 television and film productions are on hold because of this new policy. Um, because they have to now renegotiate salaries. A talent agent uh, told um, Hong- Apple Daily that now the companies are asking these stars to take a pay cut to help make up for that new tax rate. Um, they're taking, I think, 25%. They're being asked to take a 25% pay cut. So so the companies are now still shelling out more money um, just to cover a star's pay. Um, this is a huge, huge deal because, um, you know, a lot of these films are trying to get huge stars and the um, how this started was that I think earlier this year the government um, sort of hinted that they would like to put a cap on actors salaries and and you know it makes sense because the the, the salaries that these these younger stars or these stars are being paid they're getting out of control we're talking like I said Donnie gets paid a hundred million yuan per film when most Chinese films have trouble even getting to that mark. Yes, there are commercial films that are making like billions, but you get maybe 10, 15 films in a country where 300 to 600 films are being made, uh, different estimates, Um, which means you get 200 films that are not even making that kind of box office money. Um, How are they supposed to afford these actors anymore? Um, And the rumor is that what sort of drove the government over the edge was when uh, Fan Bingbing was uh, exposed by someone who had a grudge against her, by the way. I think he was like, a, he's a commentator or he's um, he's someone famous. But out of some personal grudge, he revealed that uh, for three days or four, three days of work on, on a film called Unbreakable Spirit, Fan Bingbing got paid 20 mil, but then she had two different contracts. She had one $10 million contract, 10 million yuan contract as official, and then she had another what we call a hidden contract or a yin yang contract um, where they would pay her an extra 10, but then th- those wouldn't be taxed because that's sort of a hidden contract. Um, and that sort of sent the whole thing spiraling into a mess, and now the government is taking serious, serious um, action to make sure that these actors pay what they're due. Um, let's see how this goes but um this has sent a huge shockwave through the industry um a lot of the companies are shocked that the government didn't give them any time to adjust or to even um prepare um in fact they're quite furious that the government is is even trying to collect the tax retroactively which is unheard of um so this is going to be quite a big deal and i think it's going to be a talk of the industry for the rest of the year um I haven't heard any direct news about any of the productions I'm working on, whether they've been affected. Um, but I have a feeling that it's going to be hurting everyone for for at least a while, if you know, at least for the rest of the year, if not longer. For those who need a little bit of context, uh, if you're not up on the exchange rates, so 100 million yen or renminbi 
roughly translates out to about uh, $14.5 million U.S. Um, so that can give you some perspective on, say, Donnie's salary in comparison with people like uh, The Rock in the, in Hollywood or, you know, um, as Kevin was mentioning, uh, Fan Bingbing, who the investigation into her is what kind of launched all this tax talk, um, you know, and she's getting like, uh, you know, 10, 10 million or so split up as a contract. That's, you know, about a million or so dollars U.S., um, well, that was for only three days of work. Right, right. That was for only three days of work. So imagine what she gets paid on like a normal film where she's starring in it. Um, and the rumors are there are rumors flying all around about the whereabouts of Fan Bing. There are talks that she was she's hiding out in the states. Um, there's new media reports that now she's been um, banned from leaving the country for three years. Um, and films that that she's in uh, have to be recast, or she has to be cut out of films because she's sort of the one that's now she sort of um, what's the word um, persona persona non grata now uh, in, in Chinese cinema at least for the time being. Um, yeah, so huge, huge mess. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I I won't say I feel bad for her because I'm sure she'll be fine. <laughs> I'm sure Donnie will be fine. Um, so. You know, but this this is a thing. It's you know, you live large, you end up in some cases having to pay large, right? Well, I feel sorry for the companies because they thought that they paid a certain money. They already having to pay the actors taxes, which is already a bad deal as far as well. I, at least I think so. But now they have to pay thirty percent more than they originally pay. Um, it, it's a huge, huge blow to. I don't feel sorry for the stars. I mean, yeah, take a pay cut, whatever. But it's a huge blow to the production companies. Mm. You know, trying to get a film made. Um, suddenly you get this hidden cost sort of blindsiding you. Um, so I guess that's sort of the way business is done in China. China is a country that uh, they say they call they say rule by law, which is great. But then the thing is. They can enforce the law, or they can come up with new laws, or they can move the goalposts anytime they like, and that's why the Chinese film industry is always so unpredictable. And trying to work in that industry is always so unpredictable, and trying to deal with that industry is always so unpredictable. Yeah, true. But I mean, at the same time, you've got a different, you've got people working on, under a different set of rules. I mean, I'm sure that the people who are like the cinematographers and the key grips and uh, the tea lady aren't going to say, hey, uh, pay my salary. Oh, and by the way, pay my taxes, too, as part of the contract, right? No, from what I – so I, a lot of some groups in WeChat are starting to talk about other posts in in um, the industry or in a film production. And one post mentioned that, you know, scriptwriters are already paying 40% taxes. Um, and I think the more, the more they're, the less they make, the more taxes they pay. I have to reread the article, but it, it was about the plight of scriptwriters and how how a lot of their their salary gets you know pulled away by this forty two percent tax. And of course, they don't get a production company paid for them unless I guess you're a big shot. Like if you wrote like a billion yuan grossing film, then yeah, the tax the companies might pay the taxes for you to try and draw you in but the, the ones who are just starting out they don't get protection like that they mm -hmm. don't get that kind of cover and you know they've been getting pulled 42 i mean 42 percent is a lot of money to pay for taxes i live in hong kong where you know our taxes are capped at 15 um so it, it's unimaginable 
uh, to be a young writer starting out and trying to make a living, and then you lose, and you're already not very well paid because you were just a starting, you're just starting out as a writer, and then you lose forty percent of salary, and you have to make or you have to be on board a huge, huge film before you get, you know, proper protection uh, from these companies who are willing to pay your taxes to draw you in. Um, it, yeah, it just sort of shows a lot of these weird rules or the way that the industry is working. Um, how it still have a lot of growing pains even after I think now it's two decades since it's found its footing as a as a commercial powerhouse. All right, now let's talk about some actual production house news. Media Asia Films, right? Yes, Media Asia Films, one of the biggest film companies here in Hong Kong. They launched in the late '90s, and since then they've done pretty big films. In in fact, game changers. Um, you know, like Gen Y cops. No, okay. Well, they did. They did. Do, they did Gen Y, Gen X. Oh, actually, Gen X cops at the time was quite groundbreaking. It was sort of that whole period where Hong Kong film was trying to, you know, up go up to Hollywood standards, and you know, they made this huge action film, Gen X cops. And Gen, the less said about Gen Y cops, the better. But they also did, you know, Tempting Hard. They did the Inferno Affairs trilogy. Um, they did Beast Cops. A lot of you know really great films from the late nineties. Hey, Let's let's give credit where credit's due. Gen Y cops, Paul Rudd, right? Yeah, I I, I mean the, he's still joking about the film, which is great. Um, but let's forget about <laughs> Gen Y cops for good. But anyway, so it was one of the biggest. It, it gave us a lot of great sort of classics, hit films in the late '90s and early 2000s. And the man responsible for that was Zhang Chong. Um, he was a powerhouse producer. He got brought on to build this company from the ground up, and he was responsible for a lot of these hits. Um, but then he left the company, um, I think, a couple of years ago. I don't remember exactly, but he went and joined Raymond Wong's company, uh, Pegasus, uh, and he, I think, is responsible. At least he put his name on the S-Storm series, or the, the um Louis Koo plays I <clears throat> plays a anti-corruption investigator series that won't end. Um, they made a couple of films over at Paxis, and then Gordon Chan and Chung Hing Kai, who are you know very famous um, director writers, um, then took over the rain the reins and took over Media Asia Films. Um, but according to Apple Daily, the two ha- have already left, and Zhang Chong is now back at Media Asia Films. This is a big deal because Zhang Chong is returning to the company that he helped build. And Media Asia is one of the most influential um, film companies of the post Hanover era. Um, so to have him back after Media Asia stumbled really badly last year with Manhunt, um, and that was under Gordon Chan and Chung Hing Kai's um, uh, reign, uh, according to Apple Daily, they lost 200 million Hong Kong dollars last year, and that's uh, in American dollars. That is about um, some 25 million U.S. dollars. For a Hong Kong company to lose, that's a huge, huge amount of money. Um, so uh, I'm guessing that Gordon Chan and Chung Hing Kai will go back to what they usually do, which is directing and writing. Um, and Zhang Chong will uh, now return to Media Asia Films and hopefully be, you know, create some projects that could save the company. All right. Sounds good. We will look forward to the things to come. Our final bit of news, some sad news this week. Yes, uh, very sad news. Um, musician Ellen Liu, who was uh, a member of a folk rock 
duo here in Hong Kong named S17. Uh, she died this past weekend. Um, according to news reports, she jumped off the roof of her building uh, on Sunday morning. Um, Lou, if we're trying to connect her back to film, she did the score for uh, the Fruit Chance to Midnight After. Before that, like I said, she was one of the she was half of a very popular folk rock uh, duo named S17. Even Lamb, you might have seen her uh, doing cameos in films. She's also They've, they've sort of split up into a solo career, but they've always been the best of friends. But e- while E-Man um, sort of moved into a more entertainment career with acting and, and, and uh, uh, talk shows and things like that, Ellen stayed with music, and and her she did her first film score a couple years ago with The Midnight After. And she's been very um, uh, honest about the struggles she's had. Uh, she suffered from bipolar disorder. A couple years back and took a break, took a hiatus as a musician and then came back, I think, two years ago and and became very honest about what she went through. And she continued a solo career. She even did a reunion of S17 late last year for the 17th anniversary. Um, and she's got a lot of other things signed up. Um, uh, and she also came out last late last year Uh as a, as a lesbian, she married a Taiwan cinematographer who is actually shooting, who was working on um, uh, um, Derek Zhang's new film in China uh, when this happened. Um, and I've been a huge fan of Ellen, Ellen uh, for the past few years. I went to three of her shows um, here in Hong Kong, and she's always been one of my favorite musicians. So uh, very, very sad news. Um, yeah, um, I hope that she's happier wherever she is. All right, that's going to wrap it up for our news this week. When we come back, we have Kevin's review of House of the Rising Suns. And welcome back. So for our first film this week, we look at the Hong Kong biopic, House of the Rising Suns. Yes, this is a um, music biopic about the story of winners. Paul, Paul, have you heard any music by the winners? Yes, I, I've heard them, uh, a couple songs of theirs over the years. You know, I, I like some of the music from the era. Uh, you know, Teddy Robin was big, I think, around the same time, right? And uh, as a musician, and he had a band, and... Uh, it's a different period to be sure. You know, you've got uh, people like Sam Hoy and, and others. Um, you know, d- that kind of music doesn't appeal to everybody, especially compared to, to, to today's canto pop, right? Yeah, it was very interesting period. I think they were in the late 60s, early 70s, and they were um, very influential in sort of taking Hong Kong music from that very sort of old traditional style of Cantonese folk music to western influence pop so even though i mean right now if we listen to it it's really old-fashioned and it's kind of cheesy a bit tacky but at the time they were very influential and of course in terms of film they gave us alan tam and kenny b 
Um, so, and Anthony Chan, Anthony Chan, who directed this film, he also directed a few films back in the 80s after his winner, Winner's Days. I mean, Winner's never officially broke up. Um, they actually do come reunite every five years for concerts. They've been doing so for the last two decades or so. Um, and you hear in the film, one of the biggest points or one of the things about Winner's is that they actually never broke up. Um, and they never changed band members and they stayed together all these years. So Anthony Chan decided to, uh, I guess, make make a biopic about the formation of winners. And I'm about to read a synopsis that was clearly not written by me because I would never say some of those words about winners. But here it goes. This story follows six young men as they chase their dreams of making music based on a true story. This was a time when music was at its very finest. That was a grammatical error, by the way. These young men discovered their true passion for life and music through this emotional and raw journey to eventually become the winners. So, um, uh, the winners, uh, they, the, the members' names, of course, Alan Tan was a member, uh, Kenny B, um, he was even a songwriter at the time for the band. Uh, there was also Bennett Pang, um, there was Anthony Chen Yao, obviously, who directed this film. And there was um, uh, Danny Kwok, I think. Um, he, he's much, much less prolific because he sort of retired after uh, the winners. Uh, every, everyone sort of went their separate ways, so he's a lot less known. But the other four guys, I mean, you follow Hong Kong cinema through the last 30, 40 years, you definitely have heard of these names. Um, at least in Hong Kong entertainment, if not just Hong Kong cinema. So you could tell how influential and how popular these guys are. They started as a cover band, I think. They started singing English songs. They were even called the Losers at one point when they just uh, when they were just formed. And then they changed the name to the Winners when they made it big. Um, so they did a lot of English songs. They, they didn't start as a canto pop band. But it would appear that the production only had the money to buy one song. And you can tell which song that is by, by the title of the film yet house of the rising sun actually shows up quite prolifically in the first half of the film because that was kind of the song that these guys sang to impress um the neighborhood girls um they even covered the period when uh so if you guys i think a lot of people didn't know that but nat chan um who is now known as uh, uh, as a comedian or as a horse racing commentator? You know, at one point Nat Chan was actually the lead singer of this band. I had no idea. Oh, I didn't until know that I either. Of, yeah, yeah. Uh, and in fact, he sort of he sort of stood out of the way because if the film is correct, apparently Nat Chan realized he couldn't sing, and then sort of um, well, according to the film, he had debt to pay, or he wanted to cover his mother's debt so he sort of went away but the 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 band actually started on this illegally built roof that was above where nat chan's family lived so the band actually played there and he was the lead singer which is a a cool thing i mean people who know winners know all this but um i found it a new new thing when i did research for the film um but it's easy to tell that this film plays really fast and loose with the truth. There are traces of it. There are a lot of anecdotal things that you hear in entertainment news or on Wikipedia that kind of include it here, but it's mostly very dramatized. Um, the film is by Anthony Chan, but in the main perspective actually isn't on his character. Uh, the leaders of the band, so to speak, the most popular members were Kenny B and Alan Tam, but it's not from their perspective either. The main perspective actually was through Bennett Pang. Um, he, according to Wikipedia, he was sort of, I guess, the second leader of the band. 
um, and that he was the one at one point actually um, wanted to suggest that the band break up and Alan Tan was against it. But it would from that story, it would seem like Ben and Pang was very much a, uh, a leader type figure. And you can't tell now because he's sort of very quiet. He does, um, I think he was mostly on TV after um, days, winners, winner, his winner's days. Uh, and he was very famous uh, for the last decade for having a dog named OK Zai, like OK. And a lot of people know, knew him as the father of the dog OK. And he was very um, prolific with the dog. But you could never tell that he was like the leader of winners. But the film is very much through his character's point of view for no real reason. Unless, I guess, if, unless you're Anthony Chan, you you know, you know the dynamic of the real group is like. Um, the film uses the character's real name in the English subtitles. But for some reason, the Chinese names are changed. Um, slightly so Alan Tam his Chinese name is um, Tam Wenglun but then in the film he's called Tam Alan but then in the and of course in the subtitles he's called Alan Tam or um, Nat Chan he's called Alat which means you know very clever very smart his nickname that's his famous nickname but then in the film he's called Alek which is more sounds like Nick but then in the English subtitles again it's Nat and so on and so forth but I have no idea why the thing is the real winners appear at the end of the film so it's not like it's an unauthorized biography, right? It's made by one of the members. The real members all show up in the end. Their concert footage of the real winners at the end of the film. It's very clear that this is a real story of winners. Um, so that's a real odd mystery. Um, as you may expect, uh, in any band film, there's a lot of teen angst, uh, family objections. You know, at the time... Um, when you're a rock band, people think you're a punk or you're a hooligan or that you're not a, um, you're not going to succeed in life. So um, almost there's scenes of almost every band member dealing with that, um, and there, there's teenage love, and of course there's even some hooligan street fighting for good measure. But otherwise, it pretty much follows a, a very typical. Uh, rise and fall music film formula you see the rise of the band from their very humble days um and then you see sort of their fall because in the mid-70s they broke up well they sort of went their own ways a little bit but then they never officially quote-unquote broke up um and it, and it sort of ends when they reunite and then you know become what the winners what we know as the real winners Unfortunately, just like the real winners, the winners in the film aren't actually all that talented. Um, in fact, they spend half the film sort of mocking their own inability to sing. Um, the Kenny B character doesn't really join the band until halfway because um, one of the biggest hurdles the band has to go through is to find a proper vocalist. So they try to sing House of the Rising Suns, and if you know how, to, if you heard of House of the Rising Suns, it's a very, very hard song to sing. Um, and the, the actors have a bit of fun with that. Um, by the way, the actors playing the band here uh, is a mix of well-known young actors and not-so-well-known uh, newcomers. You have Carlos Chan, who, who's been in a lot of films. Lam Yu Sing, who was in um, Weeds on Fire. Uh, Mhok Him, who's um, who's young newcomer. By the way, Carlos Chan plays Ben and Pang. Lam Yu Sing plays uh, Dae Kwa, uh, or Yip, Dunny Yip, I think. Um, Yip Kwa and then Mhok Him plays Anthony Chan. Uh, Yu Tan, he's a uh, singer who came out of I think a talent show in China. Uh, he plays Kenny B, and Eugene Tang, um, who is in the Taiwan boy band. He's a Hong Konger, but he's in a Taiwan boy band. 
uh, he plays Alan Tam and Jonathan Wong, um, who's I guess more known as a singer here in Hong Kong than an actor. He plays uh, Nat Chan. Um, they they don't really leave much of an impression. Um, obviously, Carlos Chan leaves the most impression because he's the most uh, he's the most famous one. Um, but ultimately, they aren't really that great. Jonathan Wong has this you know arrogant smirk that never made Nat Chan really. You know, Nat Chan's not really Hong Kong's favorite person right now, so it always makes sense that you get someone who's kind of smirk, murky and arrogant, who's not very likable to play Nat Chan, <laughs> even when he's playing him young. Um, but overall, the cast doesn't, doesn't really mix well, and they're not that great. There's a lot of overacting. Um, there's a scene where an actor, uh, after being chained up by his parents, screams and, you know, s- crying and tears and snotty and just like, ah, rah, rah, and just screaming. And you also have, um, uh, I'll talk about the other actors later, but they're not that good together and they don't really leave much of an impression. Anthony, actually the actor who plays Anthony, yeah, mock him, he leaves the most impression because his, his, I guess, um, his design, he plays like a geek, he plays like a nerd who actually ends up being very good in drums. Um, he leaves the deepest impression because he just looks the most special. Um, but something very interesting, because Yu Tan, he's a Mandarin speaker, so obviously he has to be dubbed, but he's playing Kenny B, who has a very um, distinctive voice. If you heard, he's very kind of hoarse. Um it's hard to find someone to imitate him. So it sounded like, and I can't, I'm not sure because I don't remember seeing this in the credits, but it sounded like Kenny B may have dubbed his character's own voice, which would be really cool. Um, You guys have to watch the Cantonese version of the film to find out. But either way, it sounds really like Kenny B. So either kudos to Kenny B for dubbing his own character or kudos to the voice actor, who I'm sorry, I didn't realize you were doing Kenny B, but kudos to that voice actor for doing Kenny B's voice um, the story has two really extended set pieces that I think really stall the story I think they're just done for sort of com- comedy's sake um, there's a, a section where Simon Yam's character who plays a tailor and also the father of one of the band members um, <clears throat> to counter the loud band practice he pulls out all the speaker on the street and start this noise battle against the boys and it just goes on and on and on um, and it's almost like a comedic set piece but it's mildly inventive but it really gets drawn out way too long and then after the band um, gets together they have this they try to they're trying to perform in this bar and there's a real weird band versus band uh, uh, showdown between um, uh, the winners and this um, punk or metal band that's like made up of guys in their 50s which makes no sense if you live in the late 60s why would you have a what metal music wasn't a thing um, why would you have guys in their 50s playing metal music in the late 60s and it just goes on and on and they're playing um, what was it the, the Flight of the Bumblebee or something a rock version and it just goes on and on and on and on and it's supposed to be funny but it made no sense to me and it's completely wrong, you know, considering the time of the the the, um, the timeline of the story. Anyway, um, as you expect from a Hong Kong film, lots of Hong Kong stars in minor roles. You have Simon Yam, uh, you have Karen Wai playing uh, Nat Chan's mother, uh, you have Chin Siu Ho playing uh, Anthony Chan's father. I guess he also overacts because he's this sort of tough 
authoritarian father who screams at the wayward son kind of thing um and you have luke Chi playing the bar owner who becomes the band's manager so lots of these little cameos um that hong kong film fans would like um but it's weird because the story has nat chan in it but they kept out james wong which is ex- so james wong uh, as we all know is a very famous songwriter and lyricist and he actually had a big part in the winner's um career especially the early career he was the one who i think wrote and even directed an entire film so it's almost like the winner's version of help the beatles film and he wrote them a lot of lot of winner's biggest songs biggest canto pop hits and it was all done for this film but he's completely left out of the film um so weird inclusion exclusion here if you're trying to tell the winner's story how do you leave out james wong um, and it, it's a sort of odd storytelling here. Um, so it's a Hong Kong film. It's a very local film, even though it's a co-production, it's a very local film. Um, and it's interesting for fans of Canto Pop from that era, but I think it's ultimately just like Winner's Music. It's bland and harmless and not really worth remembering. And if you don't know anything about Canto Pop of this era, I don't think you'll enjoy this um i mean i know and i thought it was a bit cheesy it was a bit tacky and yeah like it's exactly what you expect from winner's music so so would you be interested in watching house of the rising suns well yeah it definitely sounds like something up your alley it it you know it is because it's even though it's dramatized it's still a piece of like hong kong history so i definitely want to uh you know find out more and and get a chance to see it when i can yeah, um, I guess I should bring up um, uh, what some of the films that Anthony Chan actually... Well, Anthony Chan sort of became... Returned as an actor a couple of years ago. Of course, he won Best Supporting Actor for Rigor Mortis. Um, but he was also um, a film financier and a director in the in the 80s. And he was quite successful as both an actor and a, a director and sort of behind the scenes back in the 80s um so it's not like he's never made a film it's not like uh suddenly some singer want to be a director but it just seems a little rusty if he was like a very much an 80s 90s hong kong film trying to be made in the 2010s and it, it just doesn't work as well <laughs> And welcome back. So, for our second film this week, we are talking about Flavors of Youth. This is a new animated feature put out in part by Netflix. And uh, this has just dropped actually a couple days ago at the time of the recording on uh, August 4th. But it did get a premiere at Anime Expo 2018 uh, back in July. So, Kevin, you saw this. Where did you see this at? I saw this on Netflix. So you saw it on Netflix too. Oh. So Yeah, but I've been, I've been tracking the project for a few months after I heard about it. Right. So this is coming. This is an anthology film. It's coming from a trio of directors. Um, one named Li Hao Ling, another we know uh, uh, as Show Joy, who's kind of a 
I guess, an internet uh, media celebrity of some sorts. And he's got, he actually directed a film some people may have seen called Surprise back in 2015, which is kind of like a comedic monkey king Chinese fantasy thing. Um, and Yoshitaka Tekuchi, uh, we have the producer here, um, Noritaka Kawaguchi, who was the producer for some of uh, Makoto Shinkai's stuff, uh, most specifically, Your Name of late. So if this film kind of has the look and the feel of Your Name a little bit, um, then there's there's a reason behind that. So as I said, the story is three anthology films um, that are centered around the idea of nostalgia and remembrance. These three films take place in separate cities, all set within China. The first is called The Rice Noodles, which follows a character named Xiao Meng as he plods through his adult life in Beijing, and he reflects back on his youth in Hunan where he could easily eat freshly made rice noodles every morning. <laughs> and so he kind of reflects back on the taste and the nostalgia and sort of the longing for a simpler time. The second story is called A Little Fashion Show, which tells of Yi, Yi Lin, a Guangzhou-based fashion model, who's starting to age out of the industry, and her sister Lulu, who has come to live with her. The two girls were separated because of an accident. You know, their parents died, and so they were separated and lived with different relatives, and they've now come back together in the city to live together. And the third film is called, Lo or the third segment is called Love in Shanghai, which looks at uh, a trio of friends, Li Mo and Xiao Yu and their friend Pan, and the three of them live together or go to school together and they live in the same district in Shanghai. And Li Mo and Xiao Yu kind of have an on again, off again crush thing going. When Xiao Yu has to move away to study, it causes tensions between uh, the two of them. And here, too, it's a kind of a look back at youth and nostalgia and school time and things like that. So the themes here are themes that you've seen and encountered in quite a few different places. So it's mainly trying to go for that nostalgia. But part of the problem for me is that when you're trying to aim for nostalgia, I always think it's best when it's shown and not told. And as such, a lot of the segments here don't really play as well as they could. I think in part they rely on way too much voiceover narration. So each segment you've got kind of the main character narrating what they're feeling and what they're longing for. And... This can this works will probably work well for some, but I'm less moved by inner monologues than I am when I'm seeing, you know, actors act. But the problem with anime is because it's a bit more of a limited style of animation, and the animation here is beautiful. I'm not I'm not coming down on it, um, but it's less expressive than say having live actors go through the motions of the same thing and you know emoting with their emotions and their facial quirks and things like that so the stories can be a bit hit and miss at times i think that um the first one the segment on the noodles is good but again not as effective as if you're watching something like samurai gourmet which is really kind of doing the same thing and it's it's storytelling there's a lot of focus on food and and remembrance of other times or the fascination with food and taste and here they're animating the cooking of noodles and the creating of a simple rice noodle bowl but it's not as mouth-watering when you're seeing that somebody do it live in HD right so um, it just doesn't have that same level of, uh, of expression that that uh, I think you can find 
other live action things doing. Um, but still, it's a good segment. I think it's effective. The model segment was a bit more full of the standard sort of model narrative tropes. Young, up-and-comer, you know, who's getting ready to take on the whole world versus the central character who's kind of at the top of her game but starting to see that she's being edged out of things and, and you know, she's trying to keep up. Uh, and the final one, sort of a love segment, you know, youthful love that's been missed somehow and can you get it back and um, has, again, standard tropes, the, the standard fat friend who's there kind of for comedic effect. Um, so a lot of that, I think, in narrative terms is pretty much been there, done that. But the things I really appreciated were the environments, the cityscapes. These are points of focus, especially if you go back and look at a lot of um, Makoto, Makoto Shinkai's work. A lot of focus on environment, a lot of focuses on place, actual place, and recreating that environment in anime form. And I think the film here is very effective at doing that. Um, the different places, Beijing, Yunnan, Shanghai, Guangzhou, um, they've, they, you know, they have key points of focus, and those were very interesting moments for me, and I really wanted more of that than anything else. Um, still, overall, as an anthology, I think the material is handled in a fairly interesting manner. It's unoffensive. I mean, it's in China, and even though they touch on China things like um, the pressure to get into school, the idea of uh, reconstruction going on in Shanghai, they never go too deep into political territory and, you know, talk about it in a bad way. It's, it's there, it's happening, it's unoffensive, it's, you know, just part of life and change which is kind of the overarching theme of all of these stories is the characters facing life and a change of life and then wondering, you know, were things really better off back way back when. Um, the love segment in particular, I think feels like it really could be a China film. I mean, I've, if you look at things like American dreams in China and um, what was the, what was the Vicky Zhao directed movie? Do you remember Kevin? Uh, so young, um, so young, you know, stuff like that. It's like really, you know, it, it really feels like it could be right there as a, as a live action piece with the story it's trying to tell. Um, nostalgic youth, old use of old mediums like cassette tapes and things. Um, again, China demolitions, modern urban strife, all of that's there. It's present. It seems that if you've watched China movies in the past decade, you'll be familiar with. Um, but it's easily digestible. It's only 74 minutes long. And it's, um, you know, it, it's, you, you can just kind of go through it. You can watch each segment on its own. They're not really connected at all. Um, you know, so it's basically just like different chapters. The uh, Netflix version two has the option for both subs and dubs. So you can choose from a wide, a wide variety of subtitle options, um, including English, but also Japanese, simplified Chinese, traditional Chinese. And dubbing options, which include an English, they've got they got English actors working on this, um, and including I think the actress from Westworld. If I looked at the cast list correctly, um, she's doing one of the voices here. Uh, the Japanese track is listed as the quote unquote original track, but there's also a Mandarin track. I switched over and listened to the Mandarin track for a bit because I thought, you know, this is these are stories set in China. Should I listen to the Mandarin track? But ultimately, I ended up switching back to the Japanese track just because it it somehow f felt more right to me just based on the look of the thing. Um, but yeah, you have a, a wide variety of options to choose from. Um, 
two of the three of these, as I said, sort of China-centric. Um, the, the middle one, uh, which is uh, taking place in Guangzhou, it could have been placed anywhere, really. Um, there's, there's not a lot of super focus on the city in that one. Um, but again, overall, you know, it's these are three cities, city cities in China. And part of me wonders the choice for that, um, not including the selection of directors, but I'm wondering if because of the, of the fact that Your Name did so well in mainland China, was that one of the motivations for them to, to create this and to have all the cities set in China. Um, also, be sure to stay for the very end credit uh, post credit scene at the all the way at the end of the credits there's a uh, like a two minute scene that happens there um, that takes place at an airport uh, that looks suspiciously like Pudong Airport but um, it's hard to say uh, Kevin and I were talking about that before the show because so many of the airports look the same these days and they've all become sort of homogenized be sure to check that out I don't think this will be as memorable for a lot of people as your name it seems to be getting mixed reviews it has a pretty high score over on rotten tomatoes but i i read a japan i think in the japan times they were kind of down on it so um you know it's again it's easy it's accessible and if you like anime if you're somebody who likes that style of anime that you get with the makoto shinkai work uh, you know check it out uh kevin you've seen this so what are your thoughts on it yeah just it was an odd thing to me um so what i hear is that it was um the director of the final film uh he or she has a animation house and he or she has been approaching comics way for years about co-production and they got their wish eventually and they started on this project so two of the three films are done by chinese directors and the middle film is done by a an animator who's at comics wave um but the idea is that it's sort of a uh, 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 China meets Japan sort of thing. A lot of the animators are Japanese, but there's also also Chinese uh, staff on there. But it's really weird. I try to watch it. Like I try to watch it in Mandarin because you know the first story is directed by a, a Chinese director and written by a Chinese director, and therefore you would think that the Chinese dialogue would be the most natural. But it was it, it wasn't. It was very odd. It was oddly like um, listening to a dub of a foreign animated film. So I went back to Japanese, and it sounded a lot more natural, which I guess says a lot about Japanese voice actors and and their quality of their work. So I went back to Japanese, and I tried to turn on the Chinese subtitles to see if I could get the Mandarin dialogue, but it's, it was weird because all the Mandarin dialogue or all the Chinese subtitles in both Simplify and, and, and Traditional were following a Japanese dialogue. So I couldn't even get a sense of what they were trying to say in Mandarin. Um it was super awesome. The second film, obviously, it went to Japanese because it was made by a Japanese director, written by the same director. Um, naturally, it would be Japanese. But for the third film, I think you can safely switch to Mandarin. Sounds a lot more natural. Sounded like real dialogue. Even though the subtitles were still following the Japanese version, so it was still a little bit off, just uh, about 5%, 10% off at the most. Um, doesn't really change the meaning, but some of the lines are delivered in different ways or different words are used things like that not quite the same meaning um as well but still the mandarin track sounded um more under natural so i just used my ears and listened to the dialogue um the first film i thought okay here's the thing about makoto shinkai right he i always called him the animated version of Wong kar wai he loves voiceovers and he loves these melancholic stories of unrequited love 
Um, and yes, he does use a lot of voiceovers, but he he's always backed them up with really strong emotions. I didn't mind the voiceover styles of his storytelling. And of course, the images are gorgeous. Here, these the weaknesses of these films expose just how great of a storyteller Makoto Shinkai is. He's not just that guy who makes very beautiful images. And and I am not the biggest fan of your name in the world. I thought it actually wasn't one of his strongest efforts. Um, my favorites are still Five Centimeters Per Second and Garden of Words. Um, short and sweet and just, you know, very beautiful love stories. Um, again, very Wong Kar Wai-esque. So I think the weaknesses of these films, the thing about the guy with the noodles, who cares? Yeah, he talks about how he just loves eating noodles, but that's about it. The story doesn't go anywhere. Oh, I ate noodles in my hometown and they're really good, but now in Beijing, noodles are expensive <laughs> and not as good. The end. Like, that's it. Any, any hint of telling... There are it, it. It's sort of like this guy is walking down the street and he's seeing better stories unfold, but he doesn't care because he just wants some damn noodles. So the story about the first noodle owner, I like to hear about that. The story about the single mother who owns the noodle shop, I like to hear about that. But no, it always goes back to his damn noodles. Oh, I really like noodles. Oh, these guys are gone, and then a new owner came in, and I had some more noodles, and that's it. I couldn't. It wasn't like because it was only twenty minutes, so it's not like it was torture or anything. But I was like, "What? What's going on?" Uh, the model thing was a bit odd. It was okay, um, like you said, Paul. It could have been set anywhere, but it was still an interesting sisterhood sort of story. Um, it was okay and didn't rely on any voiceover, if I remember, or not much at least. Um, the images are okay. It was just very middle of the road. Um, and the third film, actually done by the the guy who who initiated this project, um, is much better. It's the best one of all, and includes all those emotions you would, excuse me, you would see in a Makoto Shinkai animated film, um, and it was sort of the best imitation uh, of a Makoto Shinkai film, and it was good. Um, but visual style, it, it just looks like Japan. It looks like Japan with Chinese words in it <laughs> everywhere. Um, the visual style doesn't show anything about, okay, why are we watching a Jap a Chinese animated film? Or are we just watching Chinese directors turn China into Japanese, into Japan? Or they're trying to do Japanese-style animation. What's the point of it? How does it set Chinese animation apart from anywhere else? Why do I have to watch your stories when Makoto Shinkai has done better things in Japan? Um, using that same style. Uh, it's an interesting experiment, but I wish they weren't so hung up on trying to recreate that Comics Wave style because Comics Wave signature, visual signature, is very distinct. And if you're... First of all, you try to do a different visual scheme, then there's no point in using Comics Wave. But if you use Comics Wave, then there's no point in setting the stories in China, right? Or why not just get Makoto Shinkai to do a film in China, which they would never be able to do it. Um, so it was a very odd thing to me. I didn't hate it. Um, it's it's not really a film that offends anyone. Um, it's just not very 
good. <laughs> All right. Well, there you have it. Check it out for yourself and let us know what you thought. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. You have been listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor, Snauzer Radio Orchestra, with research coming from a variety of places, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. If you would like to be part of the show, please do get in touch with us via the website at concast.com. That's twitter.com slash concast. Our email is eastscreen at gmail.com, and you can find us on Facebook at East S West S. As always, please do follow along with Mr. Ma and all that he's doing as he moves and shakes. So, Kevin, where can they find out more about you? You can read my stuff on uh, Cathay Pacific's magazines uh, and Cathay Dragons magazine, um, Discovery and Silk Road. This month, I write about um, the writer for World Film Club, uh, and in our big sort of movie premiere thing, I don't remember what I wrote about because this happens every week on this episode on this show. I swear, uh, but at least I remember World Film Club, which is an excellent indie film called The Writer. Definitely try and check that out if you're flying on Cathay Pacific or Cathay Dragon. You can follow me on Twitter. I am at the Golden Rock. That's one word, uh, the Golden Rock. Um, I have a website called Asia and Cinema that I haven't updated in months, but hopefully, I, as I promise every week on this show, I will um, update it sometime in the future because I still pay for the domain. Um, and uh, you can follow um, me that site on Twitter, which is also useless because I haven't updated that in months. Uh, it is at Asia in Cinema in one word. Uh, you can also email me at Kevin at Asia in Cinema, or you can um, message us the show on a uh, East what was it East S West S, Facebook dot com yeah. slash yeah Facebook dot com slash East S West S. We do a uh, reply to messages because well I'm on the at the office all day on Facebook, so I have nothing better to do, um, and and we do respond to messages and post things uh, once in a while. All right, excellent. Um, as always, uh, please do check out our friends over at the Podcast on Fire Next Network. Our next episode, uh, which will be 262, I'm going to be talking about The Meg with uh, Li Bingbing. Uh, what do you think you'll be talking about, sir? can't believe you're making me watch The Meg, Paul. <laughs> oh, I was hoping I could avoid that one. Um, I'm going to talk about Along with the Gods Part 2. Yeah. All right. Excellent. So all of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Screen, West Screen podcast saying, always be a winner, and we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody. Thank you.